You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Rosenfarb. Our guest today is Josh Patrick. Josh works with private business owners to create value in their personal business life. His goal is to help his clients make their life better. He blogs online on his own site at stage2planning.com, and he's also a contributor to the New York Times' You're the Boss blog on small business issues. So Josh is a great guest because he's got lots of wonderful stories that he's going to share with us about business owners that are thinking about exit and succession planning. Josh, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Noel, for having me. My, my pleasure. So um, let's get started. Why don't you tell us some great stories that you have about owners? And I know one that you and I had talked a little bit about was getting an owner to become operationally irrelevant. So take our listeners through the, the value of becoming irrelevant and uh, how they might go about it and, and what this case involved. Cool. Um, I think the most important thing a business owner can do to create value is to make themselves a passive owner. Uh, whether you're going to keep your business or you're going to sell your business, under e- either case, if you're not involved in the day-to-day operations, you've made your business significantly more valuable. If you're going to sell your business to a third party or try to transition it to somebody else, uh, the buyer or the new owner is going to be really interested in your team members, going to be interested in uh, your senior management team. They are not interested in you. You know, there, there's usually more buyers and sellers. You know, one of the great lies of the world is I'm going to come and buy your business. I'm going to give you all this money, but I really don't care about your cash flow or your business. I really want your brains. And that gets an awful lot of people excited about selling to a particular buyer. The fact is, if you go to your to the person buying your business and say, look, I've built this great business, and you don't need me, I can walk out tomorrow, and you're going to be able to run this business without me, you're going to get more money for it. It's just that simple. On the other hand, let's say I want to keep my business. I've created this great business again. I've made myself into a passive owner. I'm not involved in day-to-day operations. I'm involved in financial decisions. I'm involved in strategic direction of the business. I've got a really good staff that implements this stuff. I don't have to work really hard. I mean, I've already worked probably for 20 or 25 years really hard, and I've created this great business where I'm not involved in the day-to-day operations, and I get to keep all the cash flow. Now, there's a certain amount of risk in that, and there may come a time where I don't want to keep that cash flow anymore, but now I've got a choice. And one of the things I always tell folks when I'm working with them is saying, hey, let's get our business ready to sell, have it in sale-ready position all the time. 
doesn't mean you're going to sell the business, but businesses that are sale-ready run much better than businesses that don't. So the um, question is, then, okay, great. I want to be a passive owner. How do I go about doing that? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to start to systematize your business. Uh, I'm a big fan of the e-myth in that a lot of business owners build businesses that get to five employees, 10 employees, 20 employees, maybe 25 employees, and they've got all these systems running around inside their head and they've never written it down. But people really don't know what they're supposed to be doing. When you hire new people, it's sort of urban legends that get told and it's not written down systems. If you want to become a passive owner, the first thing you need to do is to systematize your business. The second thing you need to do is you need to get yourself a really good uh, chief operating officer or general manager or somebody who's going to be responsible for day-to-day operations of the business. You've got to let them run the business. Third thing you've got to do is you've got to learn to start trusting your employees. You've got to start allowing your employees to make mistakes. One of the big mistakes I think that a lot of private business owners make is it's okay for them to make mistakes, but it's not okay for everybody else to make a mistake. The fact is we're all going to make mistakes, and the question is, are we going to learn from our mistakes by making them public and then going through the learning process? Are we going to hide our mistakes, and hopefully they don't get bad enough that they put us out of business? If you do those sort of combination of things, you start moving down the path towards passive ownership. Uh, the important thing to realize about that, at least what I think is important anyhow, is that you're not going to become a passive owner in a week, two weeks, a month. It's going to take you somewhere between two years and five years to get there. And it's a process. It's not something that happens all at one time. You take one step forward, you take two steps back, you take three steps forward, you take one step back. It's not a linear line between controlling everything in my business and becoming operationally irrelevant. It takes a long time. Uh, I used to own a vending company. Um, It took me about seven or eight years to go from being involved in everything to essentially being involved in nothing, uh, except unless it was strategic or financial. And when I finally sold my business in 1995, I sold my business I walked out three hours later. I never walked back. And one of the things I'm most proud of is the business I sold was running just as well a year later as it was the day I sold it. And they still had our staff in place and still used our systems. But they didn't need me. And for me, that was a great result. And I think it was a pretty good result for the guys that bought our business also. That's great. So uh, a couple of things you talked about that I wanted to pick up on. One was the e-myth, which I think is a a, Bible of sorts for business owners. And anyone who's listening to us has probably done their own uh, research and listening to other uh, experts and reading other material. But if you haven't read the e-myth or if it's been a while, I'd highly encourage you to read it again and take those great tips and apply them in your business. Um, But the other thing and, and where I wanted to probe into you is on the mistakes and letting your team make mistakes. And you know, what's been your experience? What's the worst mistake you've seen an owner make or, or their management team make? And how have they recovered? <laughs> I, may get the, I may get the award for that. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you my story because I'm not completely embarrassed by it, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty big one. 
the worst thing that can happen in the food business is to have a salmonella breakout. And I had a commissary manager that decided he was going to save me some money. And a commissary is a food production facility and a vending company. So instead of using ground beef, he decided to use ground turkey. And he didn't handle the ground turkey appropriately. And uh, one day we got a phone call. It said, oh, one of our employees got sick on your stuff. And I, you know, hung the phone up and said, can't be true. That wouldn't happen with us. And then an hour later, another phone call rang. And then another phone call. And then by the time the fourth phone call came in, I realized we had a problem. Um, so that was the worst mistake that we ever had. And what did we learn from that? Well, what we learned is we have systems, and those systems need to be followed more carefully. And that it would have been become a fireable offense not to follow the recipes and not follow the safety procedures that were established. So that was something that was new. Now, the good news about that was that we had done some scenario planning around that particular issue. Uh, I'm a big fan of what's called scenario planning, where you try to say, okay, let's look at the four or five things that could be cause a really bad day for us. In the food business, it was that particular issue. Um, we had 27 people that actually got sick from the food that we had. We didn't lose one account, and um, everybody was handled extremely well. We got with our insurance company immediately, and our insurance company assured us, and we went out and met with everybody and all our clients, and we said, look, if you have people who are sick, we want to know who they are. We want to make sure they've been treated properly, and we want to make sure that they've been fairly taken care of. Uh, we did have one case that went through the courts and got settled, but the other 26 we just settled privately, and everybody was happy with the outcome. The reason we didn't lose any accounts was we took responsibility. And the whole thing with taking, which was a big deal in our company, is that when you make a mistake, take personal responsibility for it. Don't blame other people. Don't justify the behavior. If you're going to cause personal responsibility, then mistakes become something that's, that are okay. But if you have a culture where you're going to justify and blame people, all that happens is when a mistake happens, you get toxic. And you want to stay from that, away from that toxicity if you possibly can. Does that does that lead it down the road properly? Yeah, that's terrific. And I guess you know the what I hear from you, and and I think what most owners share when they talk about mistakes is really the the fear of the mistake is you know the business is over. But the reality of these mistakes, even terrible mistakes, is that typically they help make a company stronger, and they might have a short term cash flow impact. They might have you know there are problems that they're caused, but more often than not, the mistakes help you create a better, stronger company. It sounds like that's the same as what happened with you. Yeah, and there's a reason that owners are mistake-adverse. Um, and, and the reason is that when you first start your business, say you're doing $300,000 in sales, and somebody makes a mistake that costs you $100,000, you're out of business. But if your business is doing $3 million and you have a $100,000 mistake, that mistake will be painful, but it's not going to put you out of business. 
So owners have often, often have a hard time making that transition from having to be in control of every little detail because some of those little details might put you out of business to, the, to understanding that we don't need to be nearly as worried about the little details as long as we learn from the mistakes that happen because it's going to take a pretty big thing to stick us to put us out of business. And it's that understanding that when people finally get that or owners finally get that, that they'll start letting mistakes happen in their company, which means they're they're starting to trust their people more, which allows them to grow their business to a larger size. Now, again, so, you know, a business, you can sell businesses and you can transfer businesses that have five or six employees, but it's pretty hard. It's a lot easier to sell or transfer a business with 50 or 100 employees, but you're never going to get to 50 or 100 employees unless you learn to trust the people that work for you. Yeah. And it sounds like, uh, if I were to summarize how an owner could become operationally irrelevant, you know, create the systems, let your team make mistakes have a great management team, or at least a management team. And then another thing that you and I had talked about, uh, which you didn't comment on, is having you know a, a, a means to measure and manage the operations of the business. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Yeah, well, I, I think you have to. I mean, metrics are really important. One of the things which I would love, if I could you know, wave a magic wand over all business owners, I would have them become financially literate. The amount of financial illiteracy in our um, in, in businesses in the United States is unbelievably high. Uh, most business owners can figure out their profit and loss statement. I would dare say less than 50% understand a balance sheet, and I would say under 10% understand um, uh, uh, a cash flow statement. And the most important statement that you have in a business is your cash flow statement. Let's face it, you know, public companies are worried about profits. They don't really worry about cash because they all have too much cash um, or they at least have enough cash. So cash is not the issue. Managing profits for the markets is what they concentrate on. A private business is the other issue. I mean, at the end of the year, what do you do? You try to kill your profits so you don't pay taxes. So it's all about managing cash, and if you don't read a cash flow statement, how are you going to manage cash? On top of that, um, businesses have important numbers they all measure. And most of the time, these really important numbers that drive the value or the success of a business, you don't even see in a a P&L or a balance sheet or a cash flow statement. You know, again, going back to my vending business, um, the key number for us was what was called dollars per stop. Every time a route driver went, went to a vending machine, how many dollars of merchandise did they put in that machine? You know, if they're putting $30 in a machine at a stop or $130 in the machine to stop, you'd rather have them do $130 because your productivity is so much higher. You're not going to see that number on a profit and loss statement. And if you're a sales-based organization like a, you know, an insurance company or an investment management firm, it's all about creating new business. Well, that's about how many sales you're making. And you know, if you look at the traditional sales methodology, you make 10 calls to get three appointments to create one sale. You know, it's 10, 3, 1. That exists in almost every industry I've ever looked at, by the way. And if you have a good marketing strategy, maybe you can make that 10, 6, 3. 
but it's really about um, the metrics that you're measuring is how many calls are your salespeople making. So it's really knowing what are the metrics that drive your business, measuring those metrics, and then putting plans together to improve them. So that's a you know that's a a real big driver in making your business more successful. Um, you know, intellectual property or intangible assets you have in your sale make your business more valuable. They make your business more valuable while you're running it because your business will become more profitable, and they make your business more valuable when you go to sell it because you're more profitable than the average bear, and you can explain to a buyer why you're more profitable, why they should pay you more a higher multiple than they normally pay, because they're going to get your methodology for what makes your business successful, which they can apply to a larger enterprise. So, I mean, those are really important things to do. Uh, another thing that – go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, let's talk a little bit about maybe a different uh, type of business and how they would – prepare for a transition or, you know, get prepared to in, enhance the value of their business and sure. maybe the operation side. So th thinking about, um, you know, how a company does things and how you might look at that and maybe you could tell a story that you think would be valuable where someone, oh. you know, re-engineered their company. Yeah, I, I'm a, a huge fan of what's called lead manufacturing or lean thinking. You know, there's a book by Eric Reese called The Lean Startup, which is a pretty good book. And then there's, if you look at lean manufacturing, which is the Toyota production system, it's how Toyota runs their company. And you take this and you apply it to a, to a privately held business, you can really dramatically increase your value. Um, you know, start, let's start off with a metric. Let's say that I have a system where I measure the, I'm in a specialty, man, specialty manufacturing world, and I have a system where I um, uh, measure the efficiency of the factory that I'm running, and I think I'm running at 85% efficiency. Now, anytime somebody tells me that their factory is running at 85% efficiency, I know they're lying to themselves. And I don't mean to say this in a, a mean manner, but they're lying to themselves because Toyota, who is the best in the world, runs at about 80%. So I take a look at their numbers and I say, okay, how are you actually measuring? Now, I'll give an example. I had a, a, a specialty manufacturing company I work with, and they make a, a beauty product, and they thought they were running at an 89% efficiency rate. I said, that's not possible. So we went back and actually ran the real numbers. And it ended up they were running at an 11% efficiency rate. By the way, they were making a 10% profit at an 11% efficiency rate. In other words, the utilization rate in the plant was 11%. Now, here's the good news about that. I mean, people say 11%, oh, my God, that's terrible. And when they told me that, I said, wow, that's great news. Now, why would you think that's great news? Because it's only 11%. Imagine what they can make at 50%. If I can, if I could get to 22%, I've doubled the productivity. So that's what we're doing. The first thing we figured out, they had seven lines that were running. We sold two. So we got rid of, you know, two out of seven lines, which means we automatically increased our productivity by a significant amount because we got rid of this capacity that we were never going to use. Now, what this getting rid of this capacity allows us to do is to go into a different line of business. 
and they were going to have to get into another building and open a new building to go into this new line of business. Instead, we can do it in the same space that we did before. We're using the space more effectively, and we're going to dramatically improve the value of the business. Because the line of business they're in right now is profitable, but it's marginally profitable. The new line we're going in is three times as profitable as their old line business. So we're really excited about this. Now we can make it a lot easier because we're not going to try to run a business out of two buildings. We're going to run a business out of one building. So it's simple. And it's it's these sort of things that allow you to rethink your business. Um, And that's what the whole lean process is about. In my opinion, lean is one of the Midas strategies out there. It's what can make your company worth a lot more money. Now here's the challenge with lean. When you read the books on lean, you're reading about Toyota, you're reading about Boeing, you're reading about General Electric, you're reading about these gigantic companies that have zillions of resources. They can throw teams of people at a problem. If you own a company, you've got 50, 100, even 200 employees, you really have very limited resources for doing this sort of stuff. So you can't use the same strategy and methodology that these big companies use. You have to use a small company strategy, which means we pick one discrete part of lean and we do that. We get that running really well. Then we move to the next discrete part of, of doing it. And we do that really well and we move on. We don't try to solve the whole problem at once. We take little pieces at a time. And taking those little pieces at a time over a period of a couple of years has huge results. Now, the, the, the place that we always start with this is was, is going back. There was a fellow named W. Edwards Deming, and, again, I will quote books all day long, but I think reading a book out of crisis by Deming is probably one of the more important reads you can do in business. And in there, he says, you know, the issue is, is that most businesses are not in control. And when, he, when Deming said in control, he meant statistical control. Um, when you take a look at a particular process, you want that process to be within what's called, you know, within three standard deviations, which is 99% of the time. Anything that falls within that range is expected behavior. Now, you would think that most times, most processes fall in there. Well, my experience is when we start measuring it, it's rare that we get it in. So we have to do work first to get our processes under statistical control. Once we get our processes under statistical control, then we start taking a look at what we can do to move the bar forward. And again, it all comes down to measurement. You've got to measure what you do. Uh, If you don't measure it, you can't improve it. One of my little stupid sayings I have, you know, that which gets measured gets done. As soon as I start measuring a process in a, in a manufacturing facility, it automatically gets better. And the reason it automatically gets better is because people start paying attention to it. And you pay attention to things, they get better. I mean, it's just the way it works. And it's really pretty simple stuff to do. Um, so... You, know, you really want to take a look at the business and say, where is my largest opportunity and how can I take advantage of it? If you have a small business that's trying to be all things to all people, um, let's not try to be all things to all people. Let's develop a niche. Let's be known in our niche for being the best that there is in the industry, and let's be involved in the industry. And when people need it, they come to you automatically. And, you know, you're building, if you're a home builder, 
and you're building, you're trying to build houses that are between two hundred thousand and three million dollars. Nobody knows what you're good at, and they don't know how they're going to find you. So you know, it's really important to say, gee, there, there's five or six things that we can do to make businesses really good. Which one's going to get me the biggest result? Let me work on that one area first. And when I get really good there, then I can say, what's next? But it's really narrowing down what we're trying to do, not expanding. I mean, one of my my new sayings, which I really like a lot, is go slow to go fast. In other words, do a few things, do them really well, get them done, move on to the next thing. You'll find you move much more quickly doing one or two projects at a time than trying to do 10 or 12 projects at a time. Yeah, good advice. Uh, Hasten slowly, right? That's uh, a popular saying. Um, So let's move on to maybe another example where, you know, you advise clients to look towards a niche. And I think you started talking about that in the sense of, you know, a builder that builds $300,000 homes and $3 million homes, you know, where, where do their talents lie? So talk about yeah, well, I, and maybe yeah, we actually, I actually have a great, yeah, I had a client we had a, a really good experience with that with. It was a, a graphic artist. And, you know, in Vermont, Vermont's not a very big state, so there's really not, people believe there's not enough business for anything. So I had this graphic artist walk in my office, and we did some work with him. Um, And I asked her, you know, who is she serving? And basically said, what do you mean? I said, well, who's your your niche? So I know a lot about the food business, especially food business. And then she showed me her portfolio. And she had a you know a home builder, and she had an auto shop, and she had a repair shop. And I said to her, I said, "Well, why are you doing all these you know other things outside of the food business?" I said, "Well, there's not enough business in the food business." I said, "Really?" <laughs> so we did a little search, and only in Vermont, by the way, of how many specially moved food manufacturers were in Vermont. There's about a hundred of them. I said to her, I said, well, there seems to me there's plenty of people for you to work with in Vermont, and you know a lot about food, and you can you can easily prove to these folks that you can improve their business by your design that you do with food. And on top of that, you're not reinventing the wheel every time you do a job. You know, essentially, one specialty food company is pretty much like another specialty food company. And once you figured out what works, you can just go right across and sort of, um, you know, do, you know, take what you've done with one company and apply it to another company and apply it to another company. Well, to make a long story short, she decided to only serve in the food market. She's making, I think, three times the amount of money she was making when she was trying to be all things to all people. And she's much more efficient and she's having more fun. So it really comes down to she said, okay, she took the plunge and she decided to learn how to say no. Most of us in business have really never learned how to say no very well. We're afraid that if we don't say yes to everybody that walks in the door that wants to do business with us, no one else is ever going to walk in the door. And she, I convinced her, and she agreed to give it a shot. She started saying no. 
And by saying no, what she did was she created capacity in her business to say yes to those high-value, high-profit customers who she could really help. And that's what happens is when you learn to start saying no and you develop a niche and you really stay within your niche, you're really learning to say no to the person that um, doesn't fit, which leaves you room to say yes to somebody who does fit. And if you're really lucky, you get to have a waiting line for people who want to say yes to you, and you want to say yes to them. That's that's always the best case scenario. That's a great place to be. So let's talk a little bit about the um, mechanics of transfers and sales. And, okay. You know, cool. Let's focus a little bit on internal sales, and maybe you could give an example of an internal transfer that worked and an internal transfer that failed, and what your advice to our listeners would be if they're contemplating an internal transfer. Yeah, that's you know, I, I, again, you know, we, we were talking a little bit before, and I was going through my my litany of how many businesses there are. And there's about 28 million businesses in the United States. Only 6 million have employees. And of that 6 million, maybe a half a million to a million are really saleable to a third party. The rest are really better off transferred internally. And because a lot of businesses don't plan for an internal transfer um, uh, the way they should, they end up liquidating their business. So I'll give you two stories. I had a, an electrical contractor we were working with, and um, he had started working on his transfer about six or seven years before I even met him. So he started about 10 years before he wanted to sell his business of lining up people to take over the business when he was ready to get out. So what he did, he had chosen two people in the company, and they were paid well. They were happy with what they were doing. They were young folks. And he said, look, I'm going to be out of here in 10 years. You're going to own the company if you want it. And here's what you need to do. So he pretty much laid out what they had to do and how they had to do it. And over that 10-year period, he got a, te- a chance to test their management capabilities. Were they able to manage the business? Were they able to run the business? When, because when you sell a business internally, one thing is always true. Your buyers don't have any money. It's not always true, but it's mostly true, which means that in an internal transfer, you're going to become the bank. By the way, on a small business transfer, you're also going to be the bank. I would rather be the bank for somebody I know than somebody I don't know, So, which is one of the reasons I like internal transfers versus a small company external sale. So he got a chance to see these folks in action, see and run the company. He took less and less time off and became a passive owner. Now, for him, it took him, you know, about, you know, probably six years to get there. So for the four years uh, between the time that he actually sold his business, he had become a passive owner. He only came in, you know, a couple of days a week. And for the four-year period, he got to enjoy the cash flow from it. By the way, while this was going on, he had a very nice retirement plan where he was saving a ton of dough outside the business. He had bought a bunch of investment real estate. So he was pretty much financially independent by the time the business came around to be sold. So uh, we got to the day the business was to be sold. They had figured out how they were going to go through the transaction. We had made it a tax-efficient thing, and we pulled the trigger and it was done. He walked away. The business is still very, very, very successful. 
Um, in fact, it's even more successful now than when he owned it. And he's in retirement and very happy. That was one that worked really well. Another one was, that didn't work so well was an interior contractor. And again, I was working with this client, you know, probably six years, seven years before he actually wanted to leave the business. And every year we'd get together, and every year I'd say to him, I'd say, Bruce, have you told your guys that you want them to buy the business? He said, I'm not ready to yet. And then we go another year, same thing, I'm not ready yet. And we go another year, I'm not ready yet. And finally he calls me up and says, I want to be out of here in six months. I said, hmm, Bruce, have you talked to your guys yet? No. <laughs> so, well, do you think we might want to talk to them before we try to do this? Because you're not, you know, you're an interior contractor. You're as good as your last bid. No one's going to really want to buy you, which was true. And he went out and looked at the market. So we got the two guys you wanted to sell the business to. Um, and he, we said, here's how the transaction, we'd like to see the transaction work. And they thought Bruce was trying to take advantage of it. It worked out. It was a fair deal for him, but they didn't believe it. So they went out and hired an outside attorney and an outside accountant. And once you do that, you're into an adversarial relationship, and there wasn't a lot of trust. By the way, in our first case, because we had taken 10 years to get to groom and get ready in place, there was a lot of trust built up between the owner and the guys that were going to take over the business. In our interior contractor's place, there was almost no trust. Um, and it wasn't a negotiated deal because we were trying to get this thing under a shotgun. It was sort of he came in and demanded that this is what they were going to have to do, and there was really poor communication between the owners and the buyers. I kept recommending to the seller that he really – have a conversation without attorneys, with just he and they, and try to build some trust around this thing and make it work. Um, it ended up that we he ended up liquidating the business because what they came back and offered him was under book value. I mean, he could just liquidate his business and walk away with more money than he could have by selling the business to these guys. And, you know, had he done it right, he probably would have ended up with another seven hundred or $800,000 um, more than he did. But at the end of the day, in this particular case, even though it was a disaster, as far as the business sale goes, he's fine. Uh, he had bought some outside real estate, and there was plenty of rent coming in from the real estate to support his lifestyle going forward. So it really came down to he didn't get the sale done. The business name disappeared. The business disappeared. His legacy disappeared. But financially, he was okay. And a lot of times, financially, we are okay. Uh, but if you're going to transfer your business and you're going to do an internal transfer, it can't be done at the last minute. It's going to take you at least three years, probably five to seven years. It's just not a fast thing to do. And if you plan out long enough, it will likely go well. If you don't, then you're going to go through a liquidation or have a fire sale, one or the other. Again, really the choice is up to you, um, and you really need to be thinking about this far in advance. Now, the folks in the M&A um, business are not going to be interested in internal transactions. They don't make any money. But the folks in the succession and transition planning business who call themselves exit planners, and by the way, I really dislike that term. 
and so do business owners. So I would love to see the industry go back to succession and transition planning, which is what we're really doing, because we're transitioning ourselves from one stage in our life to another, and we're putting together a succession strategy for who's taking over our business. I think it's a much much better group of words to use. Um, I find that words really matter, and staying away from jargon-laden stuff is always a good idea. Uh, Jargon and business owners do not go together. A lot of folks who grew up in business never had business training. As I mentioned before, they're not great at finance, um, but they know how to do stuff, and they're not stupid. And using jargon makes people feel stupid. At least that's my opinion. So anyway, that's... uh, you know, it, it, internal sales are really interesting things, something that I like working on a lot, but they take a fair amount of time to make it work properly. And what about for an external sale? What advice would you have for an owner that, you know, their business qualifies to sell externally and they're looking for the highest price in a competitive, you know, offer situation? How do they go about finding someone to help them accomplish that goal? Well, I think you, I, I think if you're selling to an external market, whether it's a main street business or a middle market business, and a middle market business is typically a business between five and a hundred million dollars in sale. Uh, main street business is typically, you know, under three million dollars in sales, and there's this no man's land in the middle. You always should use an outside intermediary to help you sell your business. Um, people who buy businesses in the middle market know what they're doing. You're working in private equity, venture capital, uh, M&A acquisition teams. If you don't have a pro representing you, you're going to get your lunch eaten. If you're in the main street business, there are a lot of potholes that run across because you're likely to be holding paper. Uh, you know, a good main street business person will know how to work with the SBA and bring an SBA loan so you're holding less paper and you're taking less risk. You know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the only thing you should ever count when you sell your business is the cash you get when you sell it. And I get into a lot of arguments with M&A people about that. But the fact is, an awful lot of the times, earnouts or owner financing never gets paid. So... There is a trick to this. I mean, these folks who are good at this stuff are very good at it, and those who aren't, aren't. Now, the problem is is there's a lot of people running around the M&A world who um, don't work in the best interest of a seller, if you can afford it. It's a great idea to have an advisor who is advising you, has no financial interest in whether your business is sold or not sold, but is only working with you to get you through the process. I mean, it's something that I've done several times and I think is of value and adds a lot of value in the, in the way because this person can help you find the right M&A person to hire. Uh, you might use your CPA if he's good at that. You might use an attorney who does transaction work that's good at it. You want to have a methodology for how to hire the M&A person you're working with. Uh, I use the exact same system that we use when we hire an employee. That We have a thing we call the will-do, can-do, fit factor uh, method of management where we go through those three areas. We put together a list of what we're looking for under each heading, and we start interviewing. And when you find somebody that's a good fit for you, who is technically competent and is willing to do the activities that will get a success, that's the person you want to hire. 
um, be prepared to pay fees for it. You know, if you're in the middle market world, you're going to pay a fee for someone to put together an offering memorandum, but you're going to have a lower uh, success fee, and a success fee is the amount of money that you pay when the business is sold. In the Main Street world, you pay a higher success fee, but there often, often is no memorandum, which means you don't pay a fee to have one put together. Um, and be prepared that you're going to lose you know, somewhere between 40 and 50% of your sales prices to taxes and fees. And if you can't afford to sell your business, come up with a better strategy. And then go and sell your business and get your business ready to be sold. But you want to have your business be sale ready. You want to have, and you want to look at your business through the eyes of a buyer, not through your eyes and what, it, what the value is for you. It's the value to the buyer that counts. Um, best place to be is to have your business want to be bought by three or four people so you can do a controlled auction. And hopefully you get these people bidding against each other. And if you're really lucky, you've got a couple of billion-dollar companies beating each other over the head. <laughs> if you look at you know what Microsoft paid for Skype, which was a ridiculous amount of money, it was because Google and a couple of other big players were in there wanting the business. And it just got bid up. And with a billion-dollar company, an extra $10 million here or $10 million there doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> so <laughs> if you can position your, your business to be bought by those folks, you're going to get more money. Um, the other thing is when you're selling your business to a third party, my advice is take the best offer financially. Don't listen to what they say about how they're going to treat your employees because they all lie. Buyers need buyers who have bought a lot of businesses realize there's a certain language pattern that you're going to use with sellers. They're going to get them to want to sell to you. The it isn't meaning that these folks are they're not bad people and they're not mean. It's just that they know if they want to get a transaction done, they want to buy your business. They're going to have to tell you certain things. They want your business. They want your intellectual. Capital, sometimes they definitely want your cash flow, but they're not really interested in you, and they're going to run the business the way they want to run the business. Be prepared for what's next. Be prepared for seller's remorse. It's rare that I see a seller sell their business and is happy with what the buyer is doing with the business after they sell it. And the folks have bought my business I wouldn't run the business the way they are, but they own the business. So, frankly, it's their right to do what they want to do. And if my employees want to continue working there that were working for me, they're going to have to work under the you know the ages and what the new owner wants them to do. They bought the business. So it's you know it's one of those things. The other issue, uh, and again, Jack Beauregard talked about this a lot out of Boston. From uh, I can't remember what his name is, but he essentially works with people. Do you, do you know his name? From the Successful Transition. Yeah, Successful Transition Institute. Yeah, and, and he talks about you know the the what's next in your life sort of thing. Because when you sell your business, the phone will stop ringing. It stops ringing almost immediately, and a lot of folks get very lonely because their you know their business was their life. You know, private business owners are not good at separating their business from their personal life. In fact, I don't think they should. I think it's unhealthy to do that. I think you need to integrate it, not separate it. 
but having said that, once you sell your business, that part of your life is gone. So you need to fill it up with something else. And if you don't know what that something else is, you're likely to have a couple of years where you're very lonely and have a really hard time. Yeah. So uh, before we wrap, wrap up, Josh, why don't you offer our listeners, especially the owners on the call, uh, you know, some tips, tricks, bits of advice that you think they should heed? Well, here, here's what I would – and this is how we work with folks that we always start off with. We have this process we call what, why, how, who. And it essentially goes like this. You say, okay, what is it I'm trying to accomplish? which is my postulate. It's something I think I want to accomplish. And then I want to ask why. And I'm not going to ask why once. I'm going to ask why five times. I'm going to drill down on the reason until I get a core reason of why I want to do what it is I think I want to do. Then I'm going to go back and I'm going to check on, is that what the right what? And if it's not, I'm going to change my what, what it is I'm trying to accomplish. Once I get clear about what I'm trying to do, then I then I can figure out who do I need to help me to get there and how am I going to do it. And once I'm really clear on what I want to do, when other people start wandering off in their own directions, as most advisors do at some point, I can reel them back in and say, no, we don't want to go there. We want to go here. And if you do that, no matter if you're going to keep your business, you're going to sell your business, you're going to grow your business, you're going to make yourself a passive owner, whatever you're going to do, you're going to be pretty clear about what you're trying to do, who you need to get there, and how you're going to do it. If you do that, you're likely to be pretty successful at what you're doing. Great advice. Well, uh, Josh, if anyone listening wants to get in touch with you, they want to have a better life, and they want your help in creating value in their personal business life, what's the best way for them to contact you? Well, probably email is the best way, um, and, and my phone is the second best way. Um, and either way you can do that is just go to our website, which is www.stage2planning with the number two. And in the top right-hand corner, you'll see a number for Burlington. I'm in the Burlington office. Or you can email me at jpatrick, the letter jpatrick, at stage2planning.com. Either way is fine. Great. I want to thank you so much for joining us today and for our listeners. Please, uh, I'd encourage you, if you can, to take a moment on iTunes and leave us your feedback. We always appreciate hearing from you. And uh, thanks to Divestopedia for hosting us. We look forward to having you join us again for another podcast. This is Noah Rosenfarb. I was glad to have you with us. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.